Audio 46, Congregation of the Dead, Part 40. Let us begin with a quote from John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. In his testimony concerning his conversion, he writes, I was more loathsome in mine own eyes than was a toad, and I thought I was so in God's eyes too. Sin and corruption, I said, was as naturally bubbling out of my heart as water would bubble out of a fountain. And now I quote from his book entitled Pilgrim's Progress. Quote, I looked then and saw a man named Evangelist coming to him, that would be Christian, and asked, Wherefore dost thou cry? He answered, Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die, and after that, to come to judgment, and I find that I am not willing to do the first, nor able to do the second, evangelist. Then said evangelist, why not willing to die, since this life is attended with so many evils? The man that is Christian or pilgrim answered, because I fear that this burden that is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave and I shall fall into Tophet. And sir, if I be not fit to go to prison, I am not fit, I am sure, to go to the judgment, and from thence to execution. And the thoughts of these things make me cry. Now most of us common sense Americans, if we attempted to portray life on earth to an alien, it might go something like this. All of us earthlings come from what we call parents. We get no choice of the parents we are given, nor do we have any choice of which nation we are born into, nor our right race, nor our gender. Some parents here on earth are just wonderful, and some parents are flat out evil. Now, one of the first things we begin to become aware of is that we are born to die. But nobody seems to be researching the cure to death for what you hear people say is death and taxes are inevitable. So just deal with it. Then we find out that we could die any moment or we could live to be 100 years or more. And death is usually a solemn, mournful time because of the loss of a loved one. Then we also find out that one human may murder another human and then there is a great investigation to apprehend the murderer and bring him to justice. And if the murder is a premeditated first-degree murder, the killer may receive the death penalty. So in this murder rap, death would be considered a judgment upon the killer. But then when you talk to others about their own death, they don't seem to think that their death is a judgment that somebody higher than themselves is placing upon them, which is an interesting phenomena. For police investigators will sometimes spend years bringing a serial killer to justice, but there is no investigation into who is causing people to die, their so-called natural death. You would think these humans would make the connection that their own death may be a judgment upon them by a supernatural force. But when you ask these humans why they are dying, they give answers that are not sound enough to cure death. 
they give answers like old age, eating the wrong food, disease, etc. They even worry about saving the planet, but don't seem to care about the death of their own soul. Also, down here on Earth, there is such a thing where one nation, through their military, goes against another nation's military, and they kill each other until one side becomes victorious. Here again, one nation judges another nation through death, and so we again see that death involves judgment. But again, these humans don't seem to think their own personal death is a judgment, which is an interesting curiosity. At the present time here on Earth, we have a country called Russia, which has invaded another country called Ukraine, and millions of Ukrainians are fleeing the wrath to come, and thousands of others are fighting back. So the question is, why do the humans on Earth not attempt to flee the wrath to come upon themselves before they die? The answer is pretty simple, is it not? They do not see their death as a judgment. They just see it as old age, a disease, etc. Now, if they did see it as a judgment, they would also need to know why they were being judged. For if they knew not why they were being judged, they would not know what needed to be fixed in order to stop the judgment upon them. In other words, we as natural men Americans would need to know why God is so angry with us that he desires to kill us. Then we as common sense natural men Americans begin to think if God has the ability to kill us, he also had the ability to make us alive, that is through conception. So now if we could become aware of what is upsetting God so much that he is going to kill us, at least we know why God is angry and we could look for the antidote in order to calm down his wrath. If this is true, it seems as if that we were born into this world on death row, feverishly seeking a pardon before God kills us in our physical death, and then to the judgment of our soul, which is called the second death. So then we as Americans begin to conclude that this life here on earth is no more than a journey to find our way through the wicked gate before we die physically in order to escape death, that is eternal death, and to receive eternal life. So with that introduction, let us review some of the excerpts from Pilgrim's Progress that we studied in a previous message to set the stage for further details of Pilgrim's or Christian's progress to find the wicked gate in order to escape the wrath to come. Pilgrim's Progress was written by John Bunyan in 1678 as an allegory on salvation, and some say has yet to be out of print and has been translated into about 200 languages, and some say is the second most read Christian book in the world. John Bunyan begins this allegory by depicting the deplorable condition of his allegorical character, pilgrim or Christian. Quote, As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where there was a den, the Goal, and I laid me down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. I dreamed, and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags, that is in self-righteousness or without the wedding garment, standing in a certain place with his face from his own house, a book in his hand and a great burden upon his back. 
I looked and saw him open the book and read therein. And as he read, he wept and trembled. And not being able longer to contain, he break out with a lamentable cry saying, What shall I do in this plight? Therefore, he went home and refrained himself as long as he could that his wife and children should not perceive his distress. But he could not remain silent long because that his trouble increased. Wherefore, at length, he break his mind to his wife and children. And thus he began to talk to them. Oh, my dear wife, said he, and you children of my bowels, I, your dear friend, am myself undone by reason of a burden that lies hard upon me. Moreover, I am for certain informed that this our city will be burned with fire from heaven, in which fearful overthrow both myself with thee, my wife, and you, my sweet babes, shall miserably come to ruin, except the which yet I see not some way of escape that can be found whereby we may be delivered. At this, his relations were sore amazed, not for they believed that what he had said to them was true, but because they thought some frenzied distemper had got into his head. Therefore it drawing towards night, and they hoping that sleep might settle his brains, with all haste they got him to bed, but the night was as troublesome to him as the day. Wherefore, instead of sleeping, he spent it in sighs and tears. So when the morning was come, they would know how he did. He told them, worse and worse. He also set to talking to them again, but they began to be hardened. They also thought to drive away his distemper by harsh and surly conduct to him. Sometimes they would deride, sometimes they would chide, and sometimes they would quite neglect him. Wherefore, he began to retire himself to his chamber to pray for and pity them, and also to condole his own misery. He would also walk solitarily in the field, sometimes reading and sometimes praying. And thus, for some days, he spent his time. That is where we left off in a previous message. Now we'll pick up the allegorical story with a man named Evangelist, and he hopes to console Christian by directing him to the wicked gate. Now picking up the story, quote, I saw upon a time when he was walking in the fields that he was, as he was wont, reading in his book, and greatly distressed in his mind. And as he read, he burst out as he had done before, crying, What must I do to be saved? I saw also that he looked this way and that way as if he would run. Yet he stood still because, as I perceived, he could not tell which way to go. I looked then, and I saw a man named Evangelist coming to him and asked, Wherefore dost thou cry? He answered, Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die, and after that to come to judgment. And I find 
that I am not willing to do the first, nor able to do the second. Evangelist. Then said Evangelist, why not willing to die? Since this life is attended with so many evils. The man answered, because I fear that this burden that is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave, and I shall fall into Tophet. And sir, if I be not fit to go to prison, I am not fit, I am sure, to go to judgment, and from thence to execution. And the thoughts of these things make me cry. Now, as we mentioned in the introduction, we as natural men Americans do not think of our death as a judgment of God, but in a first-degree murder, we think of judging the murderer with the death penalty. But we don't think of our own death as being killed by somebody and pursuing that somebody and putting him to death for taking out our life. But what if it is God that kills us and makes us alive? Let us listen to Hanu who was barren for years, and she cried out to God for a child, and God answered her prayer, and she then prayed a prayer of praise. And in that prayer she wrote, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. And Moses writes about God saying, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, See now that I, God, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. But we, as natural man Americans, do not feel as Christian did, that we should flee this wrath to come, because we have a burden on our back, do we? Pilgrim says, because I fear that this burden that is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave, and I shall fall into Tophet. And sir, if I be not fit to go to prison, I am not fit, I am sure, to go to judgment, and from thence to execution. And the thoughts of these things make me cry. But if we, as natural men Americans, do not feel that our burden on our back is such that will condemn us to hell, then there will be no fear of our execution to come. Let us read once again. Because I fear that the burden that is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave, and I shall fall into Tophet. And sir, if I be not fit to go to prison, I am not fit, I am sure, to go to judgment and from thence to execution. And the thoughts of these things make me cry. These thoughts of judgment tend to bounce off us Americans like water off a duck's back because we as natural men Americans are born into this world incapable of believing the true Jesus, but will only believe a fake Jesus. Now, another name for Jesus is the Word of God. So when we read out of the Word of God, we are reading Jesus' words. Most of us, if we are honest with ourselves, let Jesus set on our bookshelves to get dusty. But even if we do read his judgment verses, it does not faze us. Suppose we are sitting at a Thanksgiving dinner table and one of the members of our family reads the following verses. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God 
to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Verse 7, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, who shall be punished with an everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. What is the reaction to these frightening verses of our family? Probably something like this. Could you please pass the gravy? So then we ask ourselves what Jesus would say about this. For we can make ourselves to believe no more than a blind man can make himself to see. Therefore, the Holy Spirit must convince us and convict us of our unbelief. Let us listen to Jesus in John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Verse 8. And when he, that is the Comforter or the Holy Spirit, is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Verse 9. Of sin because they believe not on me. That is, we must be convicted of the sin of unbelief. In other words, we cannot by our own free will believe on the Lord Jesus. We are all like Judas's unless Jesus makes us a new creation. So these wrath verses mean absolutely nothing to us because we are born in this world an unbelief. Just like we are born into this world Liars. Unbelief is part of our nature, just as lying is part of our nature. The lying in our heart is ineradicable, as well as unbelief in our heart is ineradicable. And thus, even if we never told one lie, we would still be judged to hell. For God cannot bring a liar into heaven lest he pollute up the place. So if we cannot get rid of the lying in our heart, doesn't it make us think to ourselves that God could not bring a liar into a holy heaven and thus we would be condemned to hell, would we not? So then what is the solution? Let us listen again carefully to the excerpt from Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim says, Because I fear that this burden that is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave and I shall fall into Tophet or hell. And sir, if I be not fit to go to prison, I am not fit, I am sure, to go to judgment and from thence to execution. And the thoughts of these things make me cry. Then said Evangelist, if this be thy condition, why standest thou still? He answered, because I know not where to go. Then he gave him a parchment roll, and there was written within, Flee from the wrath to come. The man therefore read it, and looking upon evangelists very carefully, said, Whither must I fly? 
Then said evangelist, pointing with his finger over a very wide field, Do you see yonder wicket gate? The man said, No. Then said the other, Do you see yonder shining light? And he said, I think I do. Then said evangelist, Keep that light in your eye and go up directly thereto. So shalt thou see the gate at which when thou knockest, it shall be told thee what thou shalt do. So I saw in my dream that the man began to run. Now he had not run far from his own door, but his wife and children perceiving it began to cry after him to return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on crying, Life, life, eternal life. So he looked not behind him, but fled towards the middle of the plain. So we see that evangelists, instead of simply saying to him, ask Jesus into your heart, he pointed in the direction of the wicked gate. Jesus speaks of this wicked gate, but calls it the straight gate and makes it clear that many will attempt to enter this straight gate but only a few will make it through and find salvation. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. I command you, this is Jesus, I command you, enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Verse 14. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Verse 15, beware of false prophets, that is, of the fast food free will preachers in America. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing. They have a shirt and tie on. They look normal, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Dr. Luke, chapter 13, verse 24. Strive, that is in the Greek it means agonize, agonize to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I, Jesus, say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Verse 25, when once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut to the door and you begin to stand without and to knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us and Jesus shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. Verse 26, then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. Verse 27, but he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Verse 28, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourself 
thrust out. Now, again, we as natural men Americans listen to these judgment verses and they bounce off us like water off a duck's back because we are born into this life in America in a state of unbelief. So let us again, let the allegorical character explain why these verses in the Bible affected him so that we as natural men Americans can learn from his experience. Again, quoting from Pilgrim's Progress, quote, now I saw upon a time when he was walking in the fields that he was, as he was wont, reading in his book and greatly distressed in his mind. And as he read, he burst out as he had done before, crying, what must I do to be saved? So we just read out of the Bible ourselves, as he did. And when we read these hell verses, we said, please pass the gravy. And we were not distressed at all. So why did these verses affect him and not us? But simply because we were born into this world in unbelief. But so was he. So what is the difference? So let us suppose we as natural men Americans were born into this world blind. And Jesus came into town and was going to be walking down Elm Street. And we heard he could heal the blind. Would not we as natural man Americans want to be on Elm Street the day he came by? Maybe even a hundred of us blind people would show up and cry out for mercy in hope he would heal us. Likewise, we are all born into this world in unbelief. So what should we do but cry out for mercy that Jesus would begin to awaken us to the wrath to come? First in his wrath upon us when we die physically, and then the wrath upon us in our second death when we are separated from God permanently in hell. Maybe God will awaken us and we will flee from the wrath to come by attempting to get through straight as a gate and narrow as a way. But unless we understand why God's wrath is upon us, we will flee to the wicked gate upon a false premise and we will be one of the ones who attempted to get through the gate, but the door was shut upon us. Dr. Luke chapter 13, verse 24. Agonize, I command you, agonize to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Verse 25, when once the master of the house is risen up and is shut to the door and you begin to stand without, to knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. So let us reread again and see if we can determine why Christian was fleeing from the wrath to come. Now I saw upon a time when he was walking in the fields that he was, as he wanted, reading in his book and greatly distressed in his mind. And as he read, he burst out as he had done before, crying, what must I do to be saved? I saw also that he looked this way and that way as if he would run, yet he stood still because, as I perceived, he could not tell which way to go. I looked then and saw a man named Evangelist coming to him and asked, 
Wherefore dost thou cry? He answered, Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die, that is physically, and after that to come to judgment. That would be the second death when he is sentenced to hell. And I find that I am not willing to do the first, that is die physically, nor able to do the second, come to judgment. So let us read again. Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die. Now, as we have been discussing so far in this message, we as natural man Americans do not say to ourselves that we are condemned to die physically. We do not say to ourselves that our physical death is a result of the curse of God upon us. We do not say to ourselves that we have broken God's law of perfection and thus are sentenced to death in God's courtroom. We don't think this way, and yet we have no problem thinking that the serial killer like Ted Bundy should be given the death penalty for breaking our American laws. So if we were Ted Bundy, we could say, Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die physically. Now that seems completely reasonable, does it not? But let us think of the most moral person we know and put his or her name in there. Sir, I, John Doe, the most moral man in America, perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die physically, that my physical death is a result of the curse of God upon me. I, John Doe, the most moral man in America, have broken God's law of perfection, and thus I am sentenced to death in God's courtroom. Does God send the most moral of us Americans to hell? How is that possible? So then we ask ourselves a very simple question. Why are we dying? Let us ask ourselves this question and then think on it for 10 seconds. Ready? Go. So what did most of us Americans give for an answer? Probably something like this. Old age, disease, eating the wrong foods, etc. But these reasons might extend our life a little from our perspective, but they are not going to cure us from dying. We desire, as Americans, to have eternal life. But to have eternal life, we must find the antidote or the cure to death, and we can't find that unless we know the cause of our death. Again, if we don't know why we are dying, we don't know the cause of our death, and thus we cannot find the cure to our death. To help us out a little, let us refer to the scriptures to see if we can determine the cause of our death. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man, that is Adam, sin, and sin simply means law-breaking, sin or law-breaking entered into the world, and death by sin, that is, death by breaking God's law. And so death, passed upon all men, that would include us, for that 
all have sinned. All have broken God's law. So according to God, one man, Adam, broke his law and death came. That is, death by sin. So simply put, we are dying because God told Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest he would die. That is, God would put him on death row and he would die his judgment of his physical execution 930 years later. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, that is Adam, of every tree of the garden thou mayest eat freely. Verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou, Adam, shall not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So Adam would not only be put on death row, but he also would be driven out of the garden and lose fellowship with God, or he would be judged with a spiritual death. That is, his soul would be separated from God. Death is simply a separation. Genesis chapter 5, verse 5. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Adam lived 930 years, and his soul was then separated from his body. That is what death means, separation. So Adam has two deaths because he broke one commandment. These deaths were because in God's courtroom of laws, he was found guilty under the law. What again was that law that he broke? Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou, Adam, shall not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Since we are all dying in America today, there is no doubt about it. We can easily conclude that we shouldn't mess with God. For now, for over 6,000 years, he hasn't wavered one iota. He has been absolutely resolute. He has stuck to his guns. He has refused to be persuaded by anyone to back off on his original law and its subsequent judgment. Even with all the misery, he hasn't backed off. Even with all the lying, he hasn't backed off. Even with all the divorces, he hasn't backed off. Even with all the murders, all the wars, all the genocide, all of this has been going on for 6,000 years beginning with a murder in the first family when Cain murdered his brother Abel. So maybe Jesus is dead serious when he says the following. Fisherman John chapter 5, verse 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you Americans, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. Verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son 
to have life in himself. Verse 27, and hath given him, his son, authority to execute judgment also, because he is the son of man. Verse 28, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. Verse 29, and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil, and evil in God's world is anything less than perfect, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Verse 37, and the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. Verse 38. And ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. That would be me, Jesus. Therefore, verse 39. Search the scriptures. For in them, that is in the scriptures, ye Think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. Jesus, verse 40. And ye will not come to me that ye might have eternal life. Verse 41. I receive not honor from men. Verse 42. But I know you that ye have not the love of God in you. Verse 43, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. Verse 44, how can you believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you. Even Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, in whom ye trust. Verse 46, for had you believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Verse 47, but if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? In other words, Jesus is saying, look, if I came to America today, as I did when I came to Israel, you wouldn't believe me either. I remember when one of your American families was having a Thanksgiving dinner and one of the family members read that hell verse. What was the response? It was, please pass the gravy. Was it not? Those hell verses had no heartfelt affection upon that family and they did not immediately flee the wrath to come. If my scriptures have no heartfelt affection upon you, I can assure you my in-person words would not make you flee the wrath to come either. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? So why don't we believe these hell verses, but for the fact that we are born into this world in sin, that is, the sin of unbelief. We are so much blinded by our unbelief that it does not occur to us to use self-evident truths. So why don't we simply ask ourselves, are we a liar? Yes or no? Answer, if we say no, we will be laughed off the stage, for we all know that we are liars by nature. 
Then we ask ourselves who we lie to the most. And what will be the immediate answer of 80% of us? That is right. We as Americans know we lie to ourselves the most. So the next question is, if we line up 10 Jesuses, all proclaiming to be the truth, but only one is the truth, and knowing we lie to ourselves the most, will we pick the Jesus that fits our agenda or the true Jesus? We all know we will pick the fake Jesus which will fit our agenda. That is the free will Jesus, the Jesus of the free will doctrine. For as Martin Luther proclaims, free will is a fiction. The next self-evident question is to ask ourselves if lying can be eradicated from our heart. For example, suppose we make the following vow to God and put that vow on a banner and hang it over our bedroom door. I promise to you, God, I will never, ever, for the rest of my life, embellish a truth that is, add to a truth, or subtract from the truth, so help me God. How many minutes can we go? We all know the answer to this question. The harder we try to stop adding or subtracting from the truth, the more we know we are lying. It is no different than a gymnast training for the Olympics. More and more little flaws become apparent in reaching that perfection. Thus, lying cannot be eradicated from our heart, only covered up with morality. Like the evil proclivity of lying in our heart was tested above, we can test the evil proclivity of the sin of fornication in our heart or the lust of fornication embedded in our heart from conception. This is easily tested in America today because of our rampant immorality, for we are in no short supply of scantily clad women or women dressed in figure-hugging clothing all around us. How many of us American men have to resist looking at these scantily clad women, reminding us we are fornicators or adulterers by nature? Jesus condemns all of us American men of the sin of adultery because that lust in our hearts is considered the actual sin of adultery, even if we never have committed the act of adultery. While condemning all men of the sin of adultery, he simultaneously condemns all the women of adultery who have to resist dressing as the world dresses. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus proclaims, Ye have heard it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Verse 28. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. We could do the same experiment with anger. Jesus proclaims, verse 21, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Verse 22. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Jesus tells his disciples that it is their heart, that is the evil proclivities of their heart, that is defiling them and condemning them. Verse 15, then answered Peter and said unto him, declare unto us this parable. Verse 16, and Jesus said, are ye also yet without understanding? Verse 17, do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly 
and is cast out into the draught. Verse 18. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. Verse 19. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Verse 20. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. So the fountain from which all evil flows in this world flows right out of our own heart, which is called original sin. And that original sin is sin and would condemn us to hell even if we never committed one act of sin. For common sense tells us that God cannot bring us into heaven with an ineradicable lying sin nature into a holy heaven unless we pollute the place. Now, the next self-evident truth is to ask ourselves what our gut feeling would be as our ticket into heaven, if there was a heaven. Just what our gut tells us would be the ticket into heaven. In other words, what would God look at if he looked at our life that would give him evidence that we deserve to go to heaven? Let us blank out what we think the Bible says. We just want a gut feeling. Let us take 15 seconds to think about it. Ready, go. What was our answer? Probably something like this. Number one, it could have been love. Number two, the golden rule. Three, be kind. Four, do the best you can do. So innately, or in other words, we are all born into this world believing that our good will outweigh our evil sin nature. And God is going to give us his stamp of approval. Even those of us Americans who are on death row believe the guy we murdered needed to be murdered, and God will certainly take that into consideration because of all the other good things we have done and give us the okay nod. Now, this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve who lost the glory of God after breaking God's law and then were driven out of the Garden of Eden as spiritual criminals. And now, realizing they were naked because they had lost the glory of God, they covered up their nakedness with fig leaves of morality. This is exactly what we do innately. We cover up our evil sin nature with enough immorality, thinking God will give us the okay nod. But common sense tells us that God cannot take us into a holy heaven with an evil sin nature. So what is the common sense solution? But that we must be holy or perfect to go to heaven. But we are in total unbelief when Jesus tells us, Matthew 5, verse 48, I command you, I, Jesus, command you, be therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. We, we think, as natural man Americans, Jesus says, endeavor to be perfect. Try to be perfect. Give it your best shot to be perfect. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, be perfect. Be holy. Because if you're not holy, I can't take you into heaven. But we know that that is impossible, right? But former Mr. Morality says the same thing. 
in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law, that is, try to follow the law, are under the curse of the law. That is, that you're cursed to hell if you try to follow the law. Why? Because you can't keep it perfectly. And then he quotes Moses. For as it is written by Moses, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So the point is, when we cover the evil proclivities of our heart with fig leaves of morality, it is not going to make us holy and thus unfit for heaven. In the Bible, this is called our self-righteousness. To God, our self-righteousness is nothing more than a filthy rag or a dirty menstrual cloth. Isaiah 64, 6. But we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousness, all our self-righteousness, all our attempt to follow the commandments are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf and all our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. The bottom line is that in God's eyes, we as Americans are all equal. That is, equally condemned. For we all have the same desperately wicked heart and it is this wicked heart that is condemning us to hell. God sees Rahab the prostitute, the same as former Mr. Morality, who thought he was blameless before the law. But the law cannot eradicate our evil heart. Jeremiah says this about our heart. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it. Verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Moses also speaks of how evil our heart is. Genesis chapter 5, verse 6, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the reason that we are being condemned to hell is because the evil proclivities of our heart cannot be eradicated. For all the law can do is cover over the evil of our heart with fig leaves of morality, making us falsely believe we are fit for heaven when God is looking straight through our fig leaves of morality to our evil heart and thus is condemning us to hell and we are unaware of it. We're, we're ignorant of it. So the gospel comes along and it begins to awaken us to the fact that our evil sin nature is condemning us to hell. So this burden that we began the message with, this burden that was on Pilgrim's heart is his ineradicable original sin. And he's beginning to realize that he cannot fix it with his fig leaves of morality, but only cover it up with morality. Now let us reread Pilgrim's plight. I look then and saw a man named Evangelist coming to him, that is Pilgrim, and asked, Wherefore dost thou cry? He answered, Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die, and after that to come to judgment. And I find that I am not willing to do the first, nor able to do the second. 
evangelist. Then said evangelist, why not willing to die? Since this life is attended with so many evils, the man, that is Christian, answered, because I fear that this burden that is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave, and I shall fall into Tophet. And sir, if I be not fit to go to prison, I am not fit, I am sure, to go to judgment, and from thence to execution. And the thoughts of these things make me cry. Hopefully it is a little more clear what the burden on Pilgrim's back was. The trouble is, even though we may now be a little more aware of the evil in our heart that is condemning us to hell, we cannot condemn ourselves genuinely to hell until Jesus makes us a new creation. And so what should we do? Then said Evangelist, If this be thy condition, why standest thou still? He answered, Because I know not where to go. Then he gave him a parchment roll, and there was written within, Flee from the wrath to come. The man therefore read it, and looking upon Evangelist very carefully, said, Whither must I fly? Then said Evangelist, pointing with his finger over a very wide field, Do you see yonder wicket gate? The man said, No. Then said the other, Do you see yonder shining light? He said, I think I do. Then said Evangelist, Keep that light in your eye and go up directly thereto, so shalt thou see the gate, at which then when thou knockest, it shall be told thee what thou shalt do. So I saw in my dream that the man, that is Christian, began to run. Now, let us go from Pilgrim's Progress to the autobiography of John Bunyan himself, that is, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, and listen carefully to all the trials he personally went through as he agonized to enter in at the straight gate and be made a new creation. We are going to look at some excerpts from his autobiography, which is called Grace Abounding. Quote, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, or a brief relation of the exceeding mercy of God in Christ to his poor servant, John Bunyan. In this my relation of the merciful working of God upon my soul, it will not be amiss if in the first place I do in a few words give you a hint of my pedigree and manner of bringing up, that thereby the goodness and bounty of God towards me may be the more advanced and magnified before the sons of men. For my descent then, it was, as well known by many, of a low and inconsiderable generation, my father's house being of that rank that is meanest and most despised of all the families in the land. Wherefore, I have not here, as others, to boast of noble blood or of any high-born state according to the flesh, though all things considered, I magnify the heavenly majesty for that by this door he brought me into the world to partake of the grace and life that is in Christ by the gospel, 
But yet, notwithstanding the meanness and inconsiderableness of my parents, it pleased God to put it in their hearts to put me to school, to learn both to read and write, the which I also attained according to the rate of other poor men's children. Though, to my shame, I confess I did soon lose that I had learned, even almost utterly, and that long before the Lord did work his gracious work of conversion upon my soul. As for my own natural life, for the time that I was without God in the world, it was indeed according to the course of this world and the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. It was my delight to be taken captive by the devil at his well. 2 Timothy 2, 26. Being filled with all unrighteousness, which did also so strongly work and put forth itself both in my heart and life, and that from a child, that I had but few equals, especially considering my years, which were tender, being but few, both for cursing, swearing, lying, and blaspheming the holy name of God. Yea, so settled and rooted was I in these things, that they became as a second nature to me, the which as I have also with soberness considered since, did so offend the Lord, that even in my childhood he did scare and affrighten me with fearful dreams and did terrify me with fearful visions. For often after I have spent this and the other day in sin, I have in my bed been greatly afflicted while asleep with the apprehensions of devils and wicked spirits who still as then thought, labor to draw me away with them, of which I could never be rid. Also, I should at these years be greatly afflicted and troubled with the thoughts of fearful torments of hellfire, still fearing that it would be my lot to be found at last among the devils and hellish fiends who are there bound down with the chains and bonds of darkness unto the judgment of the great day. These things I say when I was but a child, but nine or ten years old did so distress my soul that then in the midst of many sports and childish vanities, amidst my vain companions, I was often much cast down and afflicted in my mind therewith. Yet could I not let go my sins? Yea, I was also then so overcome with despair of life and heaven that I should often wish either that there had been no hell or that I had been a devil, supposing they were only tormentors, that if it must needs be that I went thither, I might be rather a tormentor than being tormented myself. A while after these terrible dreams did leave me, which also I soon forgot, for my pleasures did quickly cut off the remembrance of them as they had never been. Wherefore, with more greediness, according to the strength of nature, I did still let loose the reins of my lust and delighted in all the transgressions against the law of God, so that until I came to the state of marriage, I was the very ringleader of all the youth that kept me company, 
in all manner of vice and ungodliness. Yea, such prevalency had the lusts and fruits of the flesh in this poor soul of mine that had not a miracle of precious grace prevented. I had not only perished by the stroke of eternal justice, but had also laid myself open even to the stroke of those laws which bring some to disgrace and open shame before the face of the world. In these days, the thoughts of religion were very grievous to me. I could neither endure it myself, nor that any other should, so that when I have seen some read in those books that concern Christian piety, it would be as if it were a prison to me. Then I said unto God, Depart from me, for I desire not the desire of thy ways. I was now void of all good consideration. Heaven and hell were both out of sight and mind. And as for saving and damning, they were least in my thoughts. O oh, Lord, thou knowest my life, and my ways were not hid from thee. But this I well remember, that though I could myself sin with the greatest delight and ease, and also take pleasure in the vileness of my companions, yet even then I had at any time seen wicked things, by those who profess goodness, it would make my spirit tremble as once above all the rest when I was in the height of vanity, yet hearing one to swear that was reckoned for a religious man, it had so great a stroke upon my spirit that it made my heart ache. But God did not utterly leave me, but followed me still, not now with convictions, but judgments yet such as were mixed with mercy. For once I fell into a creek of the sea and hardly escaped drowning. And another time I fell out of the boat into Bedford River, but mercy yet preserved me alive. Besides another time being in a field with one of my companions, it chanced that an adder passed over the highway. So I, having a stick in my hand, struck her over the back. And having stunned her, I forced open her mouth with my stick and plucked her sting out with my fingers. By which act, had not God been merciful unto me, I might by my desperateness have brought myself to an end. This also I have taken notice of with thanksgiving. When I was a soldier, I was with others, were drawn out to such a place to besiege it. But when I was just ready to go, one of the company desired to go in my room, to which when I had consented, he took my place, and coming to the siege as he stood sentinel, he was shot in the head with a musket bullet and died. Here, as I said, were judgments and mercy, but neither of them did waken my soul to righteousness. Wherefore I sinned still and grew more and more rebellious against God and careless of my own salvation. Presently after this, I changed my condition into a married state and my mercy was to light upon a wife whose father was counted godly. This woman and I, though we came together as poor as poor might be, not having so much household stuff as a dish or a spoon betwixt the both of us, Yet this she had for her part, a book entitled The Plain Man's Pathway to Heaven 
and the practice of piety, which her father had left her when he died. In these two books, I would sometimes read with her, wherein I also found some things that were somewhat pleasing to me. But all this, while I met with no conviction, she also would be often telling me of what a godly man her father was and how he would reprove and correct vice both in his house and among his neighbors. What a strict and holy life he lived in his days, both in word and deed. Wherefore, these books with this relation, though they did not reach my heart to awaken it about my sad and sinful state, yet they did beget within me some desires to religion, so that because I knew no better, I fell into very eagerly with the religion of the times, to wit, to go to church twice a day, and that too with the foremost, and there should very devoutly both say and sing as others did, yet retaining my wicked life. But withal, I was so overrun with the spirit of superstition that I adored, and that with great devotion, even all things, both the high place, priest, clerk, vestment, service, and what else, belonging to the church, counting all things holy that were therein contained, and especially the priest and the clerk most happy and without doubt greatly blessed because they were the servants as I then thought of God and were principal in the holy temple to do his work therein. This conceit grew so strong in a little time upon my spirit that had I but seen a priest, though never so sordid and debauched in his life, I should find my spirit fall under him, reverence him, and knit unto him. Yea, I thought, for the love I did bear unto them, supposing them of ministers of God, I could have laid down at their feet and have been trampled upon by them. Their name, their garb, and work did so intoxicate and bewitch me. After I had been thus far some considerable time, another thought came into my mind, and that was whether we were of the Israelites or no. For finding in the scripture that they were once the peculiar people of God, thought I, if I were one of this race, my soul must needs be happy. Now again, I found within me a great longing to be resolved about this question but could not tell how I should. At last I asked my father of it, who told me, no, we were not. Wherefore I fell in my spirit as to the hopes of that, and so remained. But all this while I was not sensible of the danger and the evil of sin. I was kept from considering that sin would damn me. What religion soever I followed unless I was found in Christ? Nay, I never thought of him, or whether there was such a one or no. Thus man, while blind, doth wander, but wearieth himself with vanity, for he knoweth not the way of the city of God. But one day, amongst all the sermons our parson made, his subject was to treat of the Sabbath day, 
and of the evil of breaking that either with labor, sports, or otherwise. Now I was notwithstanding my religion, one that took much delight in all manner of vice. And especially that was the day that I did solace myself therewith. Wherefore I fell in my conscience under his sermon, thinking, thinking and believing that he made that sermon on purpose to show me my evil doing. And at that time, I felt what guilt was, though never before, that I can remember. But then I was, for the present, greatly loaden therewith, and so went home. Now therefore I went on in sin with great greediness of mine, still grudging that I could not be so satisfied with it as I would. This did continue with me about a month or more. But one day, as I was standing at a neighbor's shop window, and there cursing and swearing and playing the madman after my wanted manner, there sat a woman of the house and heard me, who, though she also was a very loose and ungodly wretch, yet protested, I swore and cursed at that most fearful rate that she was made to tremble to hear me and told me further that I was the ungodliest fellow for swearing that she had ever heard in all her life and that I, by thus doing, was able to spoil all the youth in the whole town if they come but in my company. At this reproof, I was silenced and put to secret shame and that too, as I thought before the God of heaven, wherefore, while I stood there and hanging down my head, I wished with all my heart that I might be as a little child again, that my father might learn me to speak without this wicked way of swearing. For, thought I, I am so accustomed to it that it is in vain for me to think of a reformation. For I thought it could never be, but how it came to pass, I know not. I did from this time forward so leave my swearing that it was a great wonder to myself to observe it. And whereas before I knew not how to speak, unless I put an oath before and another behind to make my words have authority, now I could, without it, speak better and with more pleasantness than ever I could before. And this while I knew not Jesus Christ, neither did I leave my sports and plays. But quickly after this, I fell into the company with one poor man that made profession of religion, who, as I then thought, did talk pleasantly of the scriptures and of the matters of religion, wherefore falling into some love and liking to what he said, I betook me to my Bible and began to take great pleasure in reading, but especially with the historical part. Therefore, for as for Paul's epistles and such like scriptures, I could not away with them, being as yet ignorant either of the corruptions of my nature or of the want and worth of Jesus Christ to save me. Wherefore, I fell to some outward reformation, both in my words and life, and did set the commandments before me for my way to heaven, which commandments I also did strive to keep as I thought 
did keep them pretty well sometimes, and then I should have comfort. Yet now and then should break one and so afflict my conscience. But then I should repent and say I was sorry for it and promise God to do better next time and there get help again. For then I thought I pleased God as well as any man in England. Thus I continued about a year, all which time our neighbors did take me to be a very godly man, a new and religious man, and did marvel much to see such a great and famous alteration in my life and manners. And indeed, so it was, though yet I knew not Christ, nor grace, nor faith, nor hope for, as I have well seen since, had I then died, my state had been most fearful. But I say, my neighbors were amazed at this, my great conversion from prodigious profaneness to something like a moral life. And truly, so they well might. For this, my conversion was as great as for Tom of Bethlehem to become a sober man. But therefore, they began to praise, to commend, and to speak well of me, both to my face and behind my back. Now I was, as they said, become godly. Now I was become a right, honest man. But oh, when I understood these were the words and opinions of me, it pleased me mighty well. For though as yet I was nothing but a poor, painted hypocrite, yet I loved to be talked of as one that was truly godly. Another thing was my dancing. I was a full year before I could quite leave that. But all this while, when I thought I kept this or that commandment, or did by word or deed anything that I thought was good, I had great peace in my conscience and should think with myself, God cannot but choose now to be pleased with me, yea, to relate it in my own way. I thought no man in England could please God better than I, but poor wretch as I was, I was all this while ignorant of Jesus Christ and going about to establish mine own righteousness and had perished therein, had not God in mercy showed me more of my state by nature. But all this while, as to the act of sinning, I was never more tender than now. But I observed, though I was such a great sinner before conversion, yet God never much charged the guilt of the sins of my ignorance upon me. Only he showed me I was lost if I had not Christ, because I had been a sinner. I saw that I wanted a perfect righteousness to present me without fault before God. And this righteousness was nowhere to be found but in the person of Jesus Christ. But my original and inward pollution that, that was my plague and affliction that I saw at a dreadful rate, always putting forth itself within me, that I had the guilt of, 
to amazement. By reason of that, I was more loathsome in mine own eyes than was a toad, and I thought I was so in God's eyes also. Now to conclude, let us listen to that last paragraph again very carefully to see how John Bunyan begins to see how damnable his own sin nature is. For in order for us as Americans to be converted, we must come to see our sin nature as God sees it and feel with great affection as he does that we willingly agree with God that we should be condemned to hell. For until this happens, we will never flee by faith to the righteousness of the second Adam to be our ticket into heaven, for it makes us holy. Again, let us listen to John Bunyan's personal testimony. Quote, I was more loathsome in mine own eyes than a toad, and I thought I was so in God's eyes also. Sin and corruption, I said, would as naturally bubble out of my heart as water would bubble out of a fountain. I thought now that everyone had a better heart than I had. I could have changed heart with anybody. I thought none but the devil himself could equalize me for inward wickedness and pollution of mind. I fell thereof at the sight of my own vileness deeply into despair, for I concluded that this condition that I was in could not stand with a state of grace. Sure, thought I, I am forsaken of God. Sure, I am given up to the devil and to a reprobate mind. And thus I continued a long while, even for some years together. While I was thus afflicted with the fears of my own damnation. So now let us review Pilgrim's Progress and let it sink into our minds that the burden on Pilgrim's back was the ineradicable evil proclivities of his heart, which were not erasable by following the law. But the function of the law was to expose the evil proclivities of his heart, making him see and feel he was condemned to hell because of the degeneracy of his heart, the wickedness of his heart, the vileness of his heart, and the wretchedness of his own heart, making him desire to flee the wrath to come and strive and agonize to enter in at the straight gate. Again, Pilgrim's Progress, quote, I looked then and saw a man named Evangelist coming to him and asked, Wherefore dost thou cry? He answered, Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die, and after that, to come to judgment, and I find that I am not willing to do the first, nor able to do the second. Evangelist then said, Evangelist, why not willing to die? Since this life is attended with so many evils, the man answered, because I fear that this burden that is upon my back 
will sink me lower than the grave, and I shall fall into Tophet. And sir, if I be not fit to go to prison, I am not fit, I am sure, to go to judgment, and from thence to execution. And the thoughts of these things make me cry. Now, once the evilness and wretchedness of our sin nature is beginning to condemn us to hell, we have only one option left, but to flee to the second Adam, who fulfilled the moral law for us, which is called the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which includes both his passive obedience, for he voluntarily took on hell for us, and his active obedience in which he fulfilled the moral law for us. When we are made a new creation by Jesus, we are given the gift of Christ's faith to lay a hold of this righteousness, which becomes our own personal perfect obedience. And we are seen as holy and perfect by our Father in heaven, making us legally fit for heaven. Let us now hear John Bunyan's personal testimony of how this came about in his life. But one day, as I was passing in the field, and that too, with some dashes on my conscience, fearing lest yet all was not right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought with all, I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness, so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he wants my righteousness, for that was just before him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away, so that from that time those dreadful scriptures of God left off to trouble me. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and the love of God. So when I came home, I looked to see if I could find that sentence, Thy righteousness is in heaven, but could not find such a saying. Wherefore my heart began to sink again. Only that was brought to my remembrance, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom. Jesus is made unto us righteousness. And Jesus is made unto us sanctification. And Jesus is made unto us redemption by this word. I saw the other sentence true. For by this scripture, I saw that the man Christ Jesus 
as he is distinct from us as touching his bodily presence, so he is our righteousness and sanctification before God. Here, therefore, I lived for some time very sweetly at peace with God through Christ. Oh, methought Christ, Christ. There was nothing but Christ that was before my eyes. I was not now only for looking upon this and the other benefits of Christ apart as of his blood, burial, or resurrection, but considering him as a whole Christ, as he in whom all these and all his other virtues, relations, offices, and operations met together, and that he sat on the right hand of God in heaven, Twas glorious to me to see his exaltation and the worth and prevalency of his benefits and, ha- and that because now I could look from myself to him and should reckon that all those graces of God that were green on me were yet but like those cracked groats and fourpence halfpennies that rich men carry in their purses when their gold is in their trunks at home. Oh, I saw my gold was in my trunk at home. In Christ, my Lord and Savior. Now Christ was all, all my wisdom, all my righteousness, all my sanctification, and all my redemption. Further, the Lord did also lead me in the mystery of the union with the Son of God, that I was joined to him, that I was flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. And now was the word sweet unto me. By this also was my faith in him as my righteousness, the more confirmed in me. For if he and I were one, then his righteousness was mine his merits mine, his victory also mine. Now could I see myself in heaven and earth at once, in heaven by my Christ, by my head, by my righteousness, and life, though on earth, by my body or person. Now I saw Christ Jesus was looked upon of God, and should also be looked upon by us as the common or public person in whom all the whole body of his elect are always to be considered and reckoned that we fulfilled the law by him, died by him, rose from the dead by him, got the victory over sin, death, the devil, and hell by him. When he died, we died, and so of his resurrection. We just listened to excerpts of John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, his personal testimony of his struggle to enter in at the wicket gate before he died personally, and hoping He was one of the elect. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and instead of having his allegorical character evangelist 
Kel Pilgrim to ask Jesus into his heart that his burden would be loose from his back. He directs him to run to the wicket gate down yonder. Our fast food free will preachers are performing spiritual abortions. That is, they are aborting our spiritual awakening short of our spiritual death and spiritual resurrection into a new creation. Or in more simple terms, they are terminating our caterpillar or natural man before it becomes a spiritual butterfly new creation. How do these free will preachers do this? But by instructing us that we have the free will power to remove that heavy burden from our back when in reality we have no power to accept or reject Jesus. For the grace of the gospel is irresistible. And when it comes upon us, it will be the most magnanimous, irresistible and memorable moment of our lives. And there will be no question in our minds that we have just been elected and translated from the utter blackness of darkness into the glorious kingdom of heaven, that is, into the kingdom of his dear son. Therefore, let us not, as Americans, allow these free will theologians to help us falsely get the burden off our back with our own free will or the help of their free will. But let us do this. Let us agonize to enter in at the straight gate, for many will seek to enter in, but will not be able. Let us as Americans be doggedly determined, unwavering, indefatigable, and resolute to be one of the ones who enter in at the straight gate before we die physically. For we are on spiritual death row to be followed by the second death, which is eternal damnation. Let us not become weary, but believe the following scripture, Habakkuk 2.3. For this vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. O Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. So now that we as Americans may be beginning to feel the evilness of the weight of our original sin on our back, for we have begun to use the law to expose these evil proclivities of our heart rather than using the law to cover them up. And we are now beginning to comprehend the reality of what it means to be on spiritual death row from conception, thus compelling us to zealously flee from the wrath to come. Let us again listen to evangelists' advice. Quote, if this be thy condition, why standest thou still? He answered, that is, Christian answered, because I know not where to go. Then he gave him a parchment roll. And there was written within, flee from the wrath to come. The man therefore read it 
and looking upon evangelists very carefully, said, Whither must I fly? Then said evangelist, pointing with his finger over a very wide field, Do you see yonder wicket gate? The man said, No. Then said the other, Do you see yonder shining light? He said, I think I do. Then said evangelist, Keep that light in your eye and go up directly thereto. So shalt thou see the gate at which when thou knockest, it shall be told thee what thou shalt do. So I saw in my dream that the man began to run. And what does Jesus tell us to do? But agonize to enter at the straight gate for many will seek to enter in, but will not be able to be continued. May the Lord bless thee and keep thee in the name of Jesus. Amen.